So Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Hear the word of the Lord. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives in everything to husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. If you go to Amazon and type in marriage under books, you'll get a huge list of books. And I, I did that this past week, and I found a whole bunch of books. Marriage on the Rock, How to Be a Better Partner, The Seven Principles of Making Marriage Work, Love More, Fight Less, Sacred Marriage, Marriage Ain't for Punks, yeah, the perfect marriage with perfect crossed out. Uh, the four seasons of marriage, the go-giver marriage, loving your spouse when you feel like walking away and they go on and on and on. And I'm guessing that some of these are pretty good. I'm guessing that you can pick up some really good principles in some of these anyway. Um, but however that might be, it's always good when you're trying to figure out something, a relationship particularly, it's good to go back to the basics. It's good to go back to the foundation, go back to the principles. And that's what the scripture always does for us. When, when they would try to ask Jesus a tricky question, Jesus, is it right for a man to divorce his wife? Is it okay? And what did he do? He would take him back to the basics. He would go back to the beginning. He said, well, time out here. Before we talk about that, let's go back to the very beginning and see what this is all about. Why God set this up in the first place. And we find Paul doing that here as he goes and applies the principles that we have been seeing in these last weeks, he applies them to specific relationships. And what we have here in these next three sections, we have three basic relationships of the first century household. And that was husband-wife, parent-children, specifically father-children, and then master-slave. And that was the common situation in the household. And he, he deals with each of those situations. But what we find here is that verse 21 is a pivot verse. It's a hinge that hinges from last week, talking about the filling in the Spirit. You remember last week we talked about being filled in the Spirit and uh, filled with Jesus in the Spirit. And then there were four manifestations of that filling. And we saw those addressing one another, verse 19, in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, 
Number two, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Number three, giving thanks always and for everything or possibly everyone to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the fourth one was submitting to one another out of, out of reverence for Christ. And that's the, the fourth manifestation of being filled in the Spirit. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this word submitting, it, it comes from being placed under. So it's being placed under, placing yourself under each other. And uh, it's, it's passive here. The voice is passive. So it's not, it's not somebody else is doing this to you, but, but it looks like it's doing it to yourself. It's a voluntary submission, placing yourself under the other. And if you think about that, this is the introduction to this whole section of wives, husbands, uh, and uh, parents, children, and slaves, and masters. And it's kind of it's, 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 it introduces this whole section by, by encouraging all of us as Christians to be trying to get as low as we can, trying to dive for the bottom, to try to get underneath other people to lift them up. That's the, that's the introduction to this section. Now, there's some who read this and then read the, the wives and husbands and children and parents and so on and say, yes, this submission, this submission is on the part of the wives, it's on the part of the children, and it's on the part of the slaves. And so that's the submitting to one another. It's the wives, it's the children, it's the slaves who have to submit. And that would fit well in a first century Roman context. That's how the structure was. That was the idea of the Roman household. But, and, and by the way, Paul uses that basic Roman outline here to talk about the family unit. But if we, if we look at it like that, we're missing what Paul is doing here because he is, he's using the outline, but he's writing a new tune here. He is making a radical revision in these relationships because he doesn't just speak to the wives. He doesn't just speak to the children. He doesn't just speak to the slaves, but he speaks to the husbands and places upon the husbands a tremendous obligation toward their wives. And he speaks to the, the, the fathers, and he doesn't just talk about their privileges, but rather their obligations to their children. And he doesn't just say to the slaves, you need to submit to your masters, but rather he says, you need to, you masters need to behave in the same way towards your slaves. He is at the same time using a traditional outline and he is upending it by placing not just one side of these relationships, but both sides of this, these relationships under the other. So there is a mutual diving under the other person, trying to get under and place ourselves underneath to lift up the other person. So this, all of that is to say that this submitting to one another applies to everyone, but it doesn't apply in the same way. Husbands and wives are different. Children and parents are different. Uh, slaves and masters are different. These are not these are not relationships that are in which in which uh, both parts have exactly the same roles. So uh, all submit, but they submit in different ways. All have obligations, but the obligations are not exactly the same in all cases. And that's where Paul addresses one group and then he addresses the other. Now, before we get to, before we get to this text and its instructions, we need to go back and look at what the problem is. I don't think I've ever seen Jeopardy. I don't think I've ever seen it. It's a game show, right? And don't they give the answer and you have to figure out the question? Is that how it works? Is, is, am I right about that or not? Okay, okay, thank you. Okay, don't be embarrassed if you've seen Jeopardy, okay? Just because I haven't, okay? I maybe saw it in my, in my childhood, so I don't, I don't know. But, but uh, here what we have is the answer. We have the solution. And so we ask, ought to ask ourselves, 
The solution to what? what? What's the problem? What are you solving? And we will not understand this text well until we see what the problem was. You see, Paul is addressing a problem that goes back to the very, very, well, almost very beginning. And to find out what that is, we go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Genesis three sixteen. Now, what has happened is God has created the humans. He has given them everything. He's given them to each other. And he's told them to, to multiply, subdue the earth, to work, and to dominate the earth for the glory of God, basically. And then they sinned. He told them one prohibition, don't do this, don't eat of this tree, and they did, and they sinned. And now we're in this part of the curse where Paul, um, not Paul, where God is speaking to, to the, uh, the serpent, to the woman, and to the man. And to the woman, he says this. At the end of verse 16, he talks about, well, the beginning of it, he says, pain in childbearing, in pain you will bring forth children. But then he says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, that's, that's kind of ambiguous. What does it mean your desire shall be for your husband? Is that a good thing? Or is that a bad thing? Is that you will love your husband with desire? Or is it some malevolent idea? Is it a, is it a, a bad idea? Is it some sort of wicked desire? And this ruling over, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? If you turn one page over and you look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, here we have God talking to Cain. And Cain is upset because God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he didn't accept Cain. So Cain is, is stewing, and God gives him a warning. And he says, he says uh, at the end of verse 7, he says, uh, well, all of verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Sin desires you, but you must rule over it. This is almost exactly the same language here almost exactly the same language your desire will be for your husband sin's desire is for you let me ask you is sin's desire a good thing sin desires to have you sin desires to own you sin desires to control you and it looks like that's what it's saying to the wife your desire will be to dominate your husband your desire will be to exercise control over your husband and then it says, uh, he says to Cain, he says, but you must rule over it. You will rule over it. So you would have, have it in your power to rule over this sin. It's going to try to bring you down, but you must rule over it. So what's it introducing here? It is introducing a life and death competition. And if we read 3.16 in light of 4.7, it looks like that's what happened to marriage. That there was an unhealthy competition that was introduced. Your desire, wife, will be to dominate your husband, but he will rule over you. Why will he rule over you? He's bigger and he's stronger. He's bigger and he's stronger. As much as, as, as men and women have in common, this is kind of across the board. In general, men are bigger and stronger just because of the way we're constituted. And so we have an advantage. We can rule over more easily. That, that's the problem. And, and, and look at history, look at marriages, look at the dynamic in your own marriage and how that, that unhealthy competition, that one-upmanship enters in and it seeks to destroy the relationship. That's the problem. So understand that and then you will see the beauty of the solution. 
And the beauty of the solution addresses the woman who desires to have her husband, who desires to control her husband, and it harnesses her, her strengths for the benefit of the relationship. And then it says to the husband who's bigger and stronger and more aggressive, he says, okay, your tendency is to rule over and dominate your wife, but, but we're going to harness that strength and we're going to use it now for the benefit of your wife. And I think you will see the beauty of this, this, this solution if you see the problem that it solves. This is the antidote to that, that, that problem, that basic problem in marriage. And the, the first the first part is addressed to the wives. But there is a delicacy about the instructions to the wives. There is a vagueness about the instruction to the wives. There is an indirectness about the instruction to the wives. Because it flows out of verse 21, and you may have thought when I was reading that I just messed up and left out some words. I left out those words on purpose because they're not there in the, the original text. So if you look at verse 21, it says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. So it doesn't say, there's, there's no direct command, wives, submit to your husbands. It's implied there, and that's why the translators put it there. The same in verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives in everything to husbands. It doesn't say, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So that's the implication. I'm not saying that translation is, is misleading, I'm just pointing out that when Paul was speaking to wives, he was speaking with delicacy, with tenderness, and he wasn't pounding the table with the wives. He pounds the table with the husbands. He gets in the husband's faces and he says, husband, this is what you must do. And he gives specific things to the husbands. With the wives, it's, it's general. It has some expansive but also vague modifiers. Submitting to one another out of awe of Christ, wives to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Well, what does as to the Lord mean? That's, that, that's kind of vague. Does it mean you submit to your husband as you do to Jesus Christ, that same sort of authority relationship? Or is it as you submit to the Lord, well, in that service to the Lord, as part of that service to the Lord, well, include in that placing yourself under your husband. I think that's probably what it means. And this also in everything, in everything, wives should, uh, well, it says should submit, but so also wives in everything to their husbands. Well, as to the Lord limits the in everything, doesn't it? So, of course, the in everything is limited by the fact that this is service to the Lord and service to the Lord would certainly exclude some things. But but that's about as specific as it gets. It doesn't give her specific things. It's just, just place yourself, place yourself under your husband. And the, the basic picture is, as the church submits to Christ, as the church places itself under Christ, let that be your guide. Let that be your picture. And you fill out the details. And by the way, each, each couple, each married couple, will kind of figure out the details of this. And it won't look the same in every single couple, how this works. But it's, here are the general guidelines. And the explanation for why the wife should do that is in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, there is a, a, a huge amount of literature about what it means that the husband is the head. And there are two basic ideas. One is the source. You go back to Genesis. Adam is the source of Eve. He's the, 
He's the fountainhead. He, she's made from him. And that's certainly biblical. And there are others who point to how head is used in Ephesians. And uh, in Ephesians, it's used as including authority. If you look at, for example, Ephesians 123, uh, 122, and he put all things under his feet, under Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so it, it's, it, in this context, it's misguided to try to take out all authority. So there is authority here, but immediately, immediately, he says, how did Christ exercise that authority? And immediately, once he mentions this idea of head of the wife, he immediately says, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And so he begins the preaching, preaching to the husbands, even as he's still talking to the wives. Okay, so that's that's all he says about the, the wife situation. Then he goes to the husbands. And he takes the gloves off and he says, "Okay, husbands, we're going to have a talk now. And he says repeatedly and in imperative commanding terms and in very specific explanation, he says, husbands, love your wives, love your wives. And he says that um, that includes that includes giving yourself up for them, nourishing them, cherishing them, and holding fast to them. Now, I want you to see something important here. Actually, I sort of jumped over this. Let's go back to the wives. One, one well, two words here in the translation. Wives, to your own husbands. So this applies to your own husbands. This is not women and men. This does not talk about women and men. This talks about wives and husbands. And so this is a very specific relationship. So there's nothing in Scripture that subjects women to men. That's, that's a caricature of Scripture. This is a, a situation in which it says one woman places herself under one man. And uh, what, what I want you to see here is, is the beauty of this. You remember we talked about these two groups that were created, men and women, and that one of those groups is bigger and stronger and tends to be more aggressive than the other? That makes living in this world very scary for half the population. Very scary. That This half of the population is very vulnerable, being physically weaker, generally smaller, and, and generally not as aggressive. That, that places half the population in a vulnerable situation. And so the idea of, of the family and of marriage is this. Well, let's, let's do this. This is God's idea. Let's take one from this group, the bigger, stronger, more aggressive group, and let's assign him to the other group, to, to be basically the personal protector and carer and bodyguard for, for each one of these, okay? And so the idea is that each woman comes into the world and she's assigned one man and it's called her father. And that father's job is to protect this woman from every other one of these bigger, stronger, and more aggressive persons on the planet. Isn't that a great arrangement? So, so everybody in this category, every woman comes into the world with, with a man assigned to her, assigned to her. And that man's job is to prosper her, to do everything he can to care for her and to protect her from being subjected to other men. So what she does, she subjects, she's subjected to her father so that she doesn't have to be subjected to any other man in this world against her will. And then if that woman gets married, there's a handoff there. 
And that handoff, the, the father says, okay. He taps the, the, the husband and says, your turn. I've gotten her this far. She's still alive. She's safe. She's prospering. She's cared for. Now it's your turn. And you take on, on this, this responsibility from here out. Now your job is to protect this woman, my daughter, from every other person in this category, this bigger, stronger, aggressive category. Now it's your job to protect her from everyone else here. Is that oppressive? Or is that a beautiful situation that gives these folks in this category, gives them freedom to walk in this dangerous world? I, I, I saw this when my daughter was, was young, one of my daughters, and she was uh, you know, becoming a, an adolescent, and she was, she was beginning to figure out that there are men in the world and women in the world, you know, and noticing how people looked at her and stuff like that. And she came to me and said, Dad, we, was, we were in this tennis group, and tennis, we played tennis at the sports club, and she said, Dad... She said, there's a man up there, and I, I don't like the way he looks at me. There's, there's something wrong with that. Dad, uh, I just don't like that. I said, okay, don't, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll go talk to him. And then she got kind of nervous. She said, well, Dad, well, well, if, you, if you go talk to him, and, and, and what if he doesn't respond well? And we were walking up to the club, and she, was gonna, she wanted to go play, but, but I, I said, well, he's right up there. I'll go, I'll go talk to him right now. And she got, got kind of nervous. She said, well, Dad, what, what happens if he doesn't respond well? I said, sweetheart, it's no problem. I'll take care of it. If he doesn't respond well, I will pound him into the pavement. <laughs> now, 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 um, now, the thing about that is not so much my comment, but what she said. She said, okay, Daddy. And she ran off to play. Even though he's still there. That guy's still there. But she was free. She was safe. Why? Because God had, a, had, a, had supplied her with one man whose job was to keep her safe from every other man who could subject her to his will against her will. Well, that won't happen. Why? Because God has provided this. See, this is, this is not oppression, folks. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. It is, it is provided for the freedom and the prosperity of every woman. One husband follow, well, following one, one father. That's, that's the design. Okay, let's get to the husbands. Let's get to the husbands. Very clear what we should do. Love our wives. As Christ loved the church. And this counters our worst tendencies. In Colossians, there's a very, very brief instruction to husbands. And it says, husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. You see, that's one of the worst tendencies of husbands. The bigger, stronger, more aggressive group, what's our tendency? It's to be harsh. And so this counters that. Okay, you're bigger, you're stronger, more aggressive. We'll put that to work. Let's harness that energy. Love your wife. As Christ loved the church, give yourself up for her, nourish her, cherish her, hold fast to her. And there are two standards for the husband's life, uh, love for his wife. And the first standard is what I just said. It's the, the love of Christ for the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The, those are your marching orders, husband. Love your wife and give yourself up for her. What's that mean? Well, we could sort of play out scenarios, and unfortunately, these scenarios in our world are not theoretical scenarios, are they, anymore with all the mass shootings that go on. Uh, yes, we could play out these scenarios, and we probably should do that. What would happen? What would we do? How would we react? Yes, your job is to get your wife to safety and put your body between her and the assailant. Okay, we can, we can play that out on our minds and hope that we will respond that way when the time comes, if that time comes. But that's... I don't want to say that's the easy thing to do because in the moment, who knows how we would respond. But this is not just when the emergency comes. 
This is day by day. This is moment by moment. Loving your wife by giving yourself up for her. Sacrificing your life for hers. If this sounds if this sounds oppressive, then I think we haven't yet gotten to the point here. Be, a, be oppressive like Christ was oppressive. And you'll, you'll, you'll quickly see that Christ wasn't oppressive at all. He dove to the bottom for his bride. He took the rap for his bride. He died for his bride. And that's the model for us. Day by day, moment by moment, sacrificing ourselves, our preferences, our conveniences, our comfort, our health, our life for our wives. If there's enough food for one, she eats and we go hungry. If the umbrella is big enough for one, she stays dry and we get wet. If there's a, a bicycle in the family, she rides the bike and we walk. Or maybe there's a car, she takes the car and we take the bicycle. You see how this works? You see, you see, it, it's always trying to get under and give her what she needs. It's trying to submit ourselves to her in that sense by submitting our lives to her service. Love your wives. Nourish them. You see that Christ loved his wife with a purpose. We, we fall in love with our wives because they're so beautiful. Right? They're so beautiful. But Christ fell in love with his wife, or I don't know if that's the right way to say it. He loved his wife not because she was so beautiful, but to make her beautiful. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This, this ties together the, the ceremonies of the, new, of the, uh, the first century, of the, the washing of the bride and the presenting of the bride to the groom and the adorning her and the perfuming the bride. And it, it mashes this together with the image that we saw in Ezekiel of God dressing his bride up and, and putting his cover over the bride and adopting her as his own wife. And that's the picture here. Christ loves his wife in order to make his wife beautiful. There's a sanctifying aspect to this love a beautifying aspect to this love. And, and that, that also is, is what we should be doing. Our wives should be getting more and more beautiful. I know the ravages of age get to all of us, right? That, that'll affect us all physically, right? But, but our wives should become more and more beautiful as they, they prosper and thrive in the context of our love. That's the picture here. And then in verse 28, we have the second, we have the second uh, standard of our love for our wives. And this almost sounds like a downer, doesn't it? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Doesn't that sound like kind of a, a step down here? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wow. Love your wives as your own bodies. But then as we read it, we realize these two different standards actually become one when we understand this idea of our own bodies. Because he describes it here, he says in verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So what it's saying here is everything you do for yourself, everything you naturally do without anybody telling you you have to do it, everything you do to take care of yourself, do that for your wife. And at first I used, I used to read this because thinking that it was saying 
Love your wife as if she were your own body, but that's not it. He goes on and says, we are members of his body. Christ does this for the church. He nourishes, he cherishes the church. He takes care of all the church's needs. Why? Because the church is his body. We are the members of his body. And then we get back to basic principles in verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This comes from Genesis 2.24. Paul's now taking us back to the very beginning. And he is saying, in marriage, when, when a, a, a man leaves his parents, goes out on his own, and he, he marries a woman, he cleaves to her, he, he enters into a, a permanent relationship with her until death, and they bring their bodies together, they become one flesh. So he's not saying, love your wife as if she were your own body. He's saying, love your wife because she is your own body. That's what marriage does. It makes two one. And so if, if you don't love your wife, you're, you're not just hating your wife, you're hating yourself. And that is so unnatural. That, that's not what humans do. Humans love themselves. We take care of ourselves. And he's saying, now she is you and you are she. And, and so love her as you love your own self. So what do you do for yourself? You make sure you get enough rest. Make sure she gets enough rest. You make sure you have enough food. Make sure she has enough food. You make sure you get rest. You make sure you get health care. You make sure you, every, every practical thing you do for yourself, do that for your wife. Make sure she has all that you can provide. And then he says this. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is a fascinating verse because we have seen throughout Ephesians, Paul has talked about the mystery. And we saw that the definition of mystery in the New Testament is something that was hidden and now is revealed. The inclusion of Gentiles along with the Jews, we've already discovered that that was a mystery. That was hidden throughout the Old Testament. There were hints here and there. But now in Christ, we've seen that, that Gentiles are included with Jews. The mystery is solved. It's no longer a mystery. It's an open secret now. And so he's saying, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What's he saying here? That from the very beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and he created the humans, and he invented marriage, he placed in this world a picture of the gospel. A picture of the gospel. And for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years, people have been trying to figure out what does marriage mean? And they've been scratching their heads. And, and, and they think, this is mysterious. We don't understand it. What is it all about? And then Christ comes and he dies for his church. And that's the aha moment. And we say, that's what this meant all along. That's why God invented marriage. So that it would be a picture of Christ's love for the church. Now I get it. And we won't get marriage until we understand what it means and what it has always pointed to and what is now revealed. And then Paul gives a summary statement here. Verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Do you remember last week we saw in verse 21 submitting to one another out of fear for Christ, and I suggest that we translate that out of awe 
of Christ? Well, this is this is the verb of that same idea. So let's see how this works. However, each let each one of you love your wife as himself and let the wife see that she is in awe of her husband. How about that? Husbands, love your wives. Wives, be in awe of your husbands. The word is fear, but not fear in a sort of cringy way. But, but the honor, the respect, the reverence, the awe for your husband. This, is, this not only solves the problem that was introduced in Genesis. It not only solves the problem, but this is both psychologically very astute and it is also very, very practical. And there's something very, very practical here because Paul never says, husbands, subject your wives to your authority. And he never says to the, to the wives, get your husbands to love you. He never does that. He says, wives, this is your job. Husbands, don't even listen to this. You don't even need to worry about this. This is, this is their job. Then he says to husbands, wives, just close your ears for a sec. Husbands, love your wives. So he gives to each one their responsibility. The worst case scenario, and I've had this in my in my pastoral study many, many times, is when each one focuses on what the other one should be doing and what they're failing to do. There's no way forward. The, the, the only way forward is when the wife says, this is what I am to do in my service to Christ. And the husband says, this is what I am to do in my service to Christ. And, and there's another, another psychologically astute thing about this. And that is, in general, now I know we, we're skating on ice when we talk about stereotypes, right? But, but I, I have found that over and over and over, wives really want to be loved. Am I, am I going out on thin ice by, by saying that? No. Wives really want to be loved by their husbands. And they flourish and they thrive and they develop and they prosper, and they're happy. If one thing, if one thing their husband can give them, and that's love. A lot of things can be going wrong in life, but if they go into their home and they say, my husband loves me, and he shows me all the time, that's a happy wife with a happy life. And with husbands. I know, kind of stereotypical, but... Husbands can, you know, a lot of things are tough in life. Things don't often go the way we hope they will. But, but when we are in our homes and we know that our wives are in awe of us, then nothing will stop us. Things can be okay in life as long as we know. If everyone else is against us, if everyone thinks that we're dirt, but we have one woman in this life who says, you are awesome then life is good so try it out husbands you want a lovely wife love the one you got and watch what happens wives you want an awesome husband stand in awe of the one you have and watch him become awesome let's pray Our God, we are in awe of Christ, the husband of the bride, the husband of the church who gave himself
for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are awesome. Your love is awesome. And we pray for our marriages, future marriages that will take place in those who are single, current marriages with all of our struggles and difficulties, that the awesomeness of your love would show forth. And that as marriage has always been designed to be, that people would be able to look at our marriages and say, oh, not what a great husband or what a great wife, but what a great Savior they have. Their Savior is awesome, that one who gave himself for his church. We pray this in Christ's name.